Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Why is this happening to me? Have you ever wanted to ask God that question? Or maybe you actually have asked that question in the midst of troubles or difficulties or pain. Sometimes we understand why troubles are in our lives. They're the result of bad choices or sinful choices that we've made, and they're just a part of the consequences of those choices. But many other times, it's not because we've done anything wrong. Troubles just come, sometimes unexpectedly from unexpected sources. That was the case for the recipients of the letter from James that we know as the book of James in the New Testament. They must have asked that question, why is this happening to me? They had done nothing wrong except to become Christ followers by faith, to trust in him for salvation and to follow him with dedicated hearts and faithful lives. But they were both Jews and now Christians. And they lived in the midst of a land in which they were under the oppression of a government that was hostile to both their ethnic origin and their faith in Christ. Uh, They were in the midst of a society that hated both Jews and Christians, and they had had to flee from their home, the, the city of Jerusalem. They had had to leave all that was safe and secure and comfortable, and they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire of their day. The theological term is the diaspora. They were scattered. And so James, who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, wrote them a letter, a letter about their faith, a letter about how to make their faith real. And so we see at the very beginning of his letter, James chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. James, though he describes himself as a slave of of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, which indeed he was, was the the brother of Jesus, though he doesn't claim any status or rank because of that kinship, but they both were uh, from the womb of Mary. They were half-brothers because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was the son of the Father, and then James and all of his other siblings were biological children of Joseph as their earthly uh, father. But James, in his early adulthood, was not a believer in Jesus as the Son of God. He only knew him as his perfect older brother. And yet, later on, after he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ, he was no longer just his older brother. He knew him as Savior and as Lord. And James went on not only to become the pastor of the church 
in Jerusalem, but to become an influential leader throughout the church all over the world of his day. Christianity was in its infancy. They did not have the completed New Testament that we are blessed to have today. There were letters being written by the leaders of the early church, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and now by James. And James is writing to those refugees who have been scattered throughout the Roman emperor, empire. And they must have asked, why is this happening to me? Well, as we study the book of James, I want us to understand this is more than just a New Testament history lesson. The book of James is rich in life-changing biblical spiritual truth, instruction not just for those early believers in the first century, but instructions for us as Christ followers in the 21st century. And he writes to them about how to think about and how to respond to the trouble in their lives. As we saw in verse 1, he began the letter identifying himself as the writer and those Jewish Christians as the recipients. That's how letters were uh, formed in those days. They didn't wait to the end of the letter to say sincerely you're so-and-so. They began the letter identifying the author and the recipients. But after he does that, he wastes no time. He dives right into what is consuming them in their lives, their troubles. So look with me as we begin the body of the letter in verse 2 of chapter 1. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, when you study a portion of Scripture like this, it's very important to pay attention to the words especially the key words, because those key words have hidden meaning that will only be found if we dig a little deeper so that they might have the full impact on our life and our faith. So let's dig a little deeper into some of these key words. He says, when troubles of any kind come your way. He doesn't say, if troubles come. It's, it's not a possibility it's a certainty. And so he says, when they come, he's saying troubles in this life are inescapable. They're inevitable. They're going to happen. If you're living life, you have experienced troubles. No matter what your age, troubles of various kinds are part of your, your life history. Or some of you to whom I'm speaking today, both in the worship center and watching online or listening to the podcast, some of you are in the middle of troubles right now. And this is especially relevant for you. 
And all of us, our future has troubles waiting for us. I, I don't mean to discourage you, but that's just the reality. Troubles are ahead. They're just a part of life in this fallen world. Uh, this is not like a lifeboat drill on a cruise ship. You ever been on a cruise? And uh, you now can stay in your room and watch it on TV. But uh, in the past, they would take you out and everybody would have to go to their muster station, they called it, and they would point to where your lifeboat was hanging from the side of the ship and they'd talk about the procedures and you'd have your life vest on and all that kind of stuff. But nobody took it too seriously because none of us, hopefully, unless you go on the Titanic, none of us are going to experience the need to get into a lifeboat to save our lives but you have to go through the drill just in case it happens, but it probably won't. Troubles are not like that. They're going to happen. You're going to need a lifeboat, so to speak. And so James says, when they come your way, and not only when they come your way, he says, troubles of any kind. Because let's be honest, troubles come in a lot of different shapes and sizes and colors, don't they? Sometimes they're financial problems. Sometimes they're health problems. Sometimes they're family problems. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands for those of you who've experienced that. Most of us in one way or another have. Or they're relationship troubles or, or career troubles or we could go on and on. There's all kinds of troubles that are going to come our way. So what do you do when that happens? Not if, but when that happens. What do you do? Well, he tells us in verse 2. And by the way, when you're digging out the meaning of the sentences in Scripture, it's always a good idea to pay special attention to the verbs. Because the verbs in a sentence are action words. They're the do words. And the do word in verse 2 is consider. Consider. In other words, he's not going to tell us how to avoid the troubles, a detour around them so they don't happen. He's not going to tell us how to escape them once they hit. He's going to talk to us about how to think about them, how to frame them, how, how to have the right attitude about them. Because here's the reality, see if you agree with this. You cannot control what troubles come your way, but you can control your attitude about them. And so that's what James deals with. Instead of saying or even whining, why is this happening to me? James says, consider, frame it, think about it. This is the attitude you should have. Consider it an opportunity for great joy, for great joy. Now, now, think about this. He's writing to people who are suffering. He's writing to people who are hurting. He's writing to people who have lost their homes. They've lost their finances. In some cases, they lost family members. He's writing to a bunch of hurting people, and he says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Instead of pain, look at it as an opportunity for gain. And you might think, well, how can gain come from this? Look at all that I've lost. And he says, here's the opportunity. When your faith is tested, 
your endurance has a chance to grow. It's not automatic, but your endurance has a chance to grow. So what do we do? He says, so let it grow. Don't fight what God is trying to do in you through the trouble. Because God either sent that trouble as an act of his divine providence by his own hand with specific intention, sent it into your life, or he allowed it to happen as one of the natural consequences of living in a fallen world filled with hurt, but he allowed it for a purpose. God never wastes a hurt. Everything that he sends or allows into our life is not by accident or happenstance. God has a purpose. Or if I may say it this way, God does not promise to exempt us from troubles, but he does promise to use them for his purpose. And so, when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. Verse 4, when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete. Now, there's a little bit of problem with translation here, especially when we, in our own mindset, hear the word perfect. Uh, the word in Greek is teleos. It does not mean perfect as in you will become a perfect person without fault. We'll never come to that point until we're home with the Lord Jesus. But that Greek word means fully grown, fully developed. The process of maturity will have been completed when you get to that point that your endurance has grown so that you're able to consider it joy even through troubles. Perfect and complete, and that word means there's no gaps in your faith. Sometimes we've got gaps in our faith. We've got places that the enemy knows where to attack because there's a gap there. He says, but if you will cooperate with what God is doing even through troubles, God will fill in those gaps, and you'll become complete, and your faith will be fully developed and strong. And maybe you hear that and say, okay, okay, I, I'm willing to let God do that in, in me through, through trouble, but how, how do we do that? How does that come about? Well, James tells us how to address that with God in verses 5 through 8. He will tell us to ask God, but there is a very important condition on how we ask if we desire to get God's answer. So look at the, the verses with me. Verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. If troubles hit you and you're confused and disoriented and you don't know what to do next, ask God. And he will give you wisdom. He will not rebuke you for asking. But there's a condition. Verse 6 begins with, But when you ask him, be sure your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. And they are unstable in everything they do. 
when troubles come and we don't know what to do, God has an opportunity to expand our faith, but we must respond correctly. When we don't know what to do, first of all, ask God. But then the condition in verse 6, but be sure that your faith is in God alone. And you ask, well, what else would it be in? Whom, whom else would it be in? You? People's faith sometimes is more in their own ability to figure things out on their own and to, to fix things for themselves and I'll get through this and, and, and I'll, I'll figure it out somehow, some, some way. And their attitude really, though, they wouldn't say it like this to God. Uh, God, I, I think I can handle this. And so uh, I'll call you if I need you. Until then, would you just stay right over there on standby? I'll let you know if I need you. No, instead, we are to go to God and admit to him we're not all that smart. We don't know what to do. Be sure your faith is in God alone. When you ask him, do not waver. In other words, okay, am I going to try to handle this or am I really going to submit myself to God and seek his wisdom? Am I ready to hear and obey him? Because here, here's the reality. God does not share his wisdom with closed hearts. Our heart has to be open to him. And if we're trying to go back and forth between I'll handle this or no, I'll depend completely on God, it says their loyalty is divided between God and the world. By the way, the, the original word there in the Greek, very interesting, it is a term that is found nowhere else in Greek literature. Not in the Greek New Testament, not in any ancient Greek literature, anywhere. James invents a word, and he only uses it twice. Here and in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, you can't have it both ways. And he said, that kind of approach to faith is similar in concept to what Jesus said through the apostle John to the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. This is a powerful passage. I want you to see this. So leave James for a moment. Go with me to Revelation 3, 15 and 16. Remember, Jesus is speaking through John here in Revelation. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold. This, this is so powerful. Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. Can you imagine the Lord saying that about you? Because your faith has become lukewarm. So, so let me ask you a question. What is your faith temperature? What is your faith temperature? Do you have a white hot passion for God and, and to know him and love him and obey him and follow him? Is your heart aflame with love for Christ or have you just kind of gotten kind of apathetic and lazy and, and lukewarm? 
Jesus said, that's detestable, that's repulsive to me. And there's so many things that can pull our hearts away from God. There's so many things that can become idols. Uh, one of the, the most popular is money. It's money. Now, keep in mind that James is writing to people who had pretty much lost all their possessions. They had lost all their finances. They, most of them anyway, had become poor. And James says to them, back to our passage, James 1 verse 9, believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. Now, why would James say that? What about being poor was any kind of honor? I think John MacArthur, in his commentary on James, absolutely nails it. Listen, listen closely to his words. He said, when God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, takes away physical possessions from some of his children, it is for the purpose of making them spiritually mature. Now, look at this last part a blessing infinitely more valuable than anything they have lost or have wanted but never possessed. In other words, if he grows us through greater dependence and faith on him through poverty, then we have been blessed by becoming poor. But then James turns it over and addresses those who have still an abundance of finances, the rich, verse 10 and following. He said, and those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. Boy, we know about that these days, don't we? The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. And then James applies that word picture. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. So how has God humbled those who are rich? By giving them an eternal perspective on material wealth. Uh, let's be honest, money solves some problems, does it not? There are some problems that you need money to solve. In fact, it solves a lot of problems, but money can't solve every problem. It can buy you a house, but it won't buy you a home. It can buy you a clock, but it won't buy you time. It can buy you a bed, but it cannot buy you restful sleep. It can buy you a book, but it cannot buy you wisdom. It can buy you medicine, but it cannot buy you health. The benefits of wealth are valuable but they're limited and they're temporary. And those who have chosen to pursue material possessions at the exclusion of spiritual truth have made a very bad trade. And verse 12 concludes our passage. It's really the payoff verse. It says, God blesses those, verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life, 
By the way, there's five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. I don't know all that the crown of life entails, but I know this, I want it, don't you? The crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. It is far more valuable than all the riches in the world. I want to quote John MacArthur once more from his commentary. This, this is powerful. Listen. When you lose a daughter, son, wife, husband, or other loved one, wealth is no comfort. When you lose your health, are betrayed by a friend, or are wrongfully maligned, money cannot buy peace of mind or decrease the pain. Trials are the great equalizer. I like that line. Trials are the great equalizer, bringing all God's children to dependence on him. And then the last sentence, wealth does not bring God closer, nor does poverty keep him further away. Verse 12 does not give us a promise of guaranteed deliverance from every trouble. It doesn't. Though sometimes God does solve our problems. Sometimes God does resolve the issue, but other times he calls on us to patiently endure. And to do that, we need grace. That's why I love Hebrews 4, 16. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Thank God for his grace in times of trouble. I, I want to conclude uh, this message with a song, but I'm, I'm going to need some help. Cindy's going to go to the piano to, to help me with that. I'm going to need your help, and I'll tell you how in a moment. Uh, this is an old gospel song. I know that's a bit of a stretch for this service, but it, it, it embodies in its lyrics the truth of this passage more than any song I know. So what I want you to do to help me is to sing the chorus with me. You probably don't know it, but, but it's a simple chorus. It goes like this. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon His Word. I think you got it. Sing it with me again. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon His Word. Good. I'll cue you when it's time to come in, okay? All right. I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions about tomorrow. There have been times I didn't know 
right from wrong But in every situation God gave blessed consolation That my trial had come So that He could make me strong Here it is, sing it Through it all I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon His Word. So I thank God for the mountains. I even thank Him for the valleys and for all those storms He's brought us through. For if we had never had those problems, we wouldn't know our God could use them. We'd never know what faith in Him could do. Stand and sing with me, would you? Through it all, through it all, we have learned, we've learned to trust in Jesus, we've learned to trust in God, through it all, through, in every situation, every trial and sorrow, we've learned to depend upon his sing that last line again we've learned to depend upon his one more time we have learned to depend upon his word father we thank you for your word today that you have spoken to us about enduring through troubles, considering it as an opportunity for great joy so that you might grow our endurance. And when it is fully formed, when it is completed and perfected, Lord, then we'll be able to withstand the problems and actually become stronger through them. Lord, I don't know what troubles my brothers and sisters are going through today. Some of them are in pretty deep water. Both those here in the worship center, those who are watching online, and those who are listening. Lord, whatever it might be, I don't know what their troubles are, but you do, and you have a purpose. And I pray that rather than becoming discouraged and defeated, they would instead realize that through the pain, through it all, you desire to help them become stronger. So Father, in these next few moments, as we have a time of prayer, I pray that many would come to the altar and bring those troubles and pray with our prayer partners 
Lord, in the previous service, there were people who came with all kinds of issues, humble enough to bring them to the altar and say, I cannot handle this. I need the Lord. Father, for those who are sick and their issue is they need your healing, I pray that they would come and allow me to anoint them as an elder of your church. And Cindy and I will pray over them that they might be healed. But most of all, I pray for those who need to take a step in their faith journey. Like the young man who said, I, I was one of those that you were talking about that were just wavering between the two positions and I was lukewarm and I'm ready to become on fire for the Lord today. I pray that there would be those who would take that kind of step and to come forward and profess that. Lord, we give you these closing moments of this service. We pray that hearts would be open and lives would be yielded. In Jesus' name, amen.